The Lord of murder shall perish, but in his doom he shall spawn. Chaos will be sown from their passage. So saith the wise Londo. Hi there, welcome to Mages and Murder Dads. I'm Cameron. And I'm Danny. And today we are, once again, talking about Baldur's Gate. Every day. Well, we don't talk about it every day. But we, I mean, I'll be honest, we do talk about Baldur's Gate probably four days a week. We talk about it more than our listeners hear about it on this podcast. A hundred percent. So, this is season two. I, I, you may not have been aware that you were in season one when you were listening to season one, but you were. You were. So, yeah, we've arbitrarily decided to uh, to divide this show up into seasons, where a season correlates to a version of the game that we've played. I think we might have said that at the end of the uh, the mini-sode, the last episode. If you, uh, if you didn't listen to that last episode, you should check it out. It's pretty cool. We just talked about Forgotten Realms lore. It's one episode back. But, yeah, so we're just season two. And we're talking about Siege of Dragonspear now for the next several episodes. And Siege of Dragonspear is the uh, expansion pack. Yeah, it's so. This is uh, I don't know. You probably know a little bit more about the history of video gaming than I do. But this uh, installment. Yeah, I know a little bit about Space War. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Is that what you're talking? You're talking about Space War. You're talking about I'm talking a little bit about uh, alien, alien. Curmudgeon invaders. Mm-hmm. You're talking about uh, Ralph Bear and the Magnavox Odyssey. Oh, I'm th- I'm, maybe I'm thinking about Paperboy colon the the Zombicide. I don't think that that's is that a real game. I don't know. I didn't even know if the last one was a real. One. I didn't know. I thought we we had turned made a right corner into just making stuff up. Oh, into absurdity. You said. No, Ralph Bear is a real person. He's a very important uh, figure in. History of video games. Oh yeah, him and John Warcraft, right? Him and John Warcraft. John Warcraft is I, are, you know, you got to make uh, some distinction points, but maybe even more important than Ralph Bear. But Ooh. anyway, what, what? Why were you calling on my expertise? I don't know. I was gonna say that I think Siege of Dragonspear, as an installment in the Baldur's Gate story franchise, mm-hmm. is kind of strange, right? This is a. That Baldur's Gate 1 came out uh, back in the year of our Lord, 1998. Is that right? Sure. Yeah. Baldur's Gate 2 comes out a few years later, which is a con- like a continuation of what happened in Baldur's Gate 1. Yeah. Um, Tales of the Sword Coast came out sometime in between those. There's like a, some, a little bit of extra content in Baldur's Gate 1. Mm-hmm. Years later, like almost a decade later, Siege of Dragonspear comes out, and think, this is a... I think more than a decade later, actually. Oh, yeah. No, you're totally right. This is, like, pretty recent. When when did Siege of Dragonspear come out? Within the last year. Oh, man. Yeah, I think yeah, it came so out. Yeah. We're playing a new game on the Baldur's Gate podcast, which oh, sounds my God. strange. I like that this is, ha- this is occurring to you right now. 
Oh no, I did not think about this at all before I played it, and I have not thought about what I'm going to say at all before we went on air. So, mm-hmm. mm. but no, this is this is pretty unusual for video games, right? Does this happen with other franchises? I can't think of another franchise that has had such a long gap. And and in particular, like, the kind of production history that this game has had, right? So, Beamdog, uh, which is the, the company that has made Siege and Dragonspear, is uh, this company that got went to Interplay, or whoever has inherited all the rights to Interplay, which is the company that... Um, I guess for uh, not produced but published the original Baldur's Gate games hmm. and got the rights to create enhanced editions. So in the first season we played uh, Baldur's Gate enhanced edition that had all kinds of benefits to it that you can hear us uh, talk about in the very first episode of Mages and Murder Dads. But um, so yeah, so they did that and then they have used that uh, I guess artistic license. Well, not artistic license, the actual legal license. The literal license. That they have negotiated between, I guess, the original rights holders and now Wizards of the Coast to create uh, these new games in the Forgotten Realm universe. So, so yeah, it's actually really, really weird. Um, and mostly because I think it's it's weird because it's normally a rights issue, right? Sure. Like, games are hard. It's hard to get all the original agreement holders of a game from 15 years ago or for 10 years ago. To agree to let you make a new game. That's just hard to do. Yeah. So And it's also even even weirder. They could have done that and made Baldur's Gate three, but they didn't. They made Siege of Dragonspear, which takes place in between Baldur's Gates, Baldur's Gate one and Baldur's Gate two. Yeah, the the kind of um well, initially when Enhanced Edition was announced, there were lots of people who just, in the kind of press and, you know, in the, the general ecosystem of video games, who just straight up called bullshit on the idea that they could even get that license and they could even do it. There was a lot of open questioning as if if they had the license or not. So that was interesting. But yeah, the, the rumor immediately was then that they were going to be working on Baldur's Gate 3 and the continuing kind of cultural rumor. And I'm curious to... to hear about what listeners have to say about this if they think this is true or if they've heard this but but I've heard uh, from several different people that Siege of Dragonspear was more of a proof of concept um, or a proof of ability even that they could do a tight contained story that was kind of predetermined right it can't go on forever because Baldur's Gate 2 happens eventually so there's a pretty tight constrained space and this was the thing that they could say hey Look, Wizards of the Coast, look, fan community, we at Beamdog can make a Baldur's Gate game that you really like, and now we can make Baldur's Gate 3. Interesting. That's so, the kind of rumor rumor mill kind of stuff. So, like, really interesting kind of history with this game, and also it's going to, you know, because we're playing the game chronologically in-universe, we are playing Siege of Dragonspear now, we're not play, playing Dra- Siege of Dragonspear last, but it is going to be interesting because we are moving from 1996 to basically 2015-2016 here yep. in terms of a lot of, like, game advancements, game mechanics, like, the, I mean, a lot of the game, is it's still a Baldur's Gate game, but, you know, we're going to talk about later some mechanical differences and mm-hmm. it's going to be interesting looking even further into the grim, dark, uh, tyr- tyrannical future of Jill Stein. Mm-hmm. Um, thinking about the transition from Siege of Dragonspear to BG Two, like it's gonna. Yeah. There's there's so many words we've yet to say, audience, and we're just gonna keep saying them. We're just gonna keep saying them. Uh, yeah, no, there's gonna be. Uh, not only are we jumping forward in 
video game design, but we are jumping forward, I think, and we'll talk about this in a little while, but we are jumping forward in role-playing game design. Mm. And by that, I mean like Dungeons and Dragons pen and paper design. I think this game feels different. This is what we were talking about before we recorded, but this game feels different than Baldur's Gate 1 and 2. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so so that's that's what we're we're gonna be talking about both today and uh, in in the future in a general kind of way. But also this season we're looking to do some stuff like interviews. Uh, we're looking to to look at some professionals and some critics and some just other people who like Baldur's Gate. Some you know nice tight stuff to to kind of go in here and and supplement. Just listening to us blather on and on. Um, where there's also new theme music. You've already heard that Brian Taylor did the new theme. And uh, it's a it's a great replacement for the thing that I made uh, fairly quickly before we launched this podcast, which I think has been very successful. I have zero apologies for it. We might go back to it one day. We might go back to an auto-tuned remix to be period appropriate for when Baldur's Gate 2 came out. We'll just find out. Kind of uh, doing a wire thing right now, though. We are, we are totally doing a, quote-unquote, the wire thing right now. Mm-hmm. Which is great. You got to keep a devil down in the hole. Mm-hmm. I think Weeds did that, too. No comment. Uh, so you can hit the like button on these videos if you like our show and you want to help us out. You can also subscribe if you have not subscribed. Um, you can also follow us on Twitter. You can support the show on Patreon. And you can uh, you can click the little like button on Facebook. All those things really help us out. If you like the show, please share it. Um, I know a lot of people have have been really... We, we have a, like a very surprising number of people who really like the show and are quite vocal about that and we are really really appreciative of that and that's exactly what we need right we don't spend any money on advertising for the show anything like that if you like listening to us talk about these video games the best thing you can do is tell other people that and no. us that you should tell us that all the time and we really appreciate it and you know i i sent a I sent Councilman a link a few days ago. Mm-hmm. I was just I was checking out the Baldur's Gate uh, subreddit, seeing what people were talking about on there, and just unbeknownst to us, somebody had like posted our podcast and said, "Hey, check this out!" And that is so cool, and and we really appreciate we we appreciate the fact that we have, and I think I told Councilman this, we have penetrated the Baldur's Gate subconscious. We have, yeah, like, we're, we're in we're the, in the community. We're mm-hmm. we're we're a part of that conversation. Yeah. No, no, absolutely. And we love to be part of that conversation. Uh, if you haven't seen the show before, too, this is a little bit of tidbit of information. Um, but what you see on the screen is not necessarily what we're talking about. Uh, it's more of a, a general feeling. Um, so often it'll be the same kind of thing. But sometimes we'll be talking about stuff that there's just no video for. It's kind of a, a fun time visual audio relationship. Mm-hmm. And, and those few times where it does match up, that just makes it all the sweeter. Uh-huh. It's also an accident if it does, <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> because you are not—you are just—you are dragging it from your the video file into the, and you're just, and and then you hit mm-hmm. publish raw video feed. It's a pure aleatory surrealist game. Mm-hmm. There we go. Nice. So, Danny, what uh, what happened? What happened? How did we get narratively from the end of Baldur's Gate, where spoilers? You kill the big bad guy, you Saravok. Oh, so dead. He's so dead. Slumped in a corner in a temple uh-huh, with, should... with his two minions 30 yards away just look, watching it happen. And if you don't know that story, you should go back and listen to... Oh, spoiler alert. Spoiler alert, the last episode of, of season one, or second to last episode of season one. But how did we get here? How did we start? 
Yeah, so uh, basically there's no real uh, narrative footwork that happens at the end of Baldur's Gate proper as far as what happens to your character. There is, you you murder Saravok, you see a little cutscene about Saravok, Saravok's soul, like, disintegrating, and a little, like, hint that there are a lot of other balls spawn, and that's it, right? So as far as, like, the main character, there's no, there's no uh, exposition done mm-hmm. on that. Yeah. So, Dragon, you know, Dragon's... Uh, Siege begins, Dragon Spear rather, begins with you descending into a dank tomb with with like some flaming fist people and Emowyn, which I was immediately very surprised of because I left Emowyn at the road leading out of Candlekeep. Yeah. Like she was just, that. that's where she was. So I was A, very surprised to hear that voice again. Mm-hmm. And Emowyn is kind of your adopted younger sister. Yeah. Yeah. We didn't really talk much about her because I don't think either of us had her in our end party, did we? Nope. No, yeah. I dumped her as soon as possible. Yeah. <laughs> she kind of hot garbage. Um, yep. Yep. Just not my favorite, uh, not my favorite Baldur's Gate 1 character, but she becomes but yes. like kind of radically important over the rest of the series. Yeah. Um, so we, uh, we are in this, uh, we kind of find ourselves in a tomb. We're in the core of... Corlaz family tomb and through Emelwyn we're told boy howdy we really just gotta clean up these Saravok cultists so the, kind of the, the stage is set Saravok is dead but his loose knit organization and like cult is still around and we are just we're kind of on a clean up mission like the big baddie is dead we just gotta make sure that these people don't abscond away into the desert and pull like a Al Qaeda in Iraq situation that my, they don't my metastasize word. into something worse yeah, yeah you got to just make sure like this is some real like medieval kind of response yeah pure eradication of the ideology yeah and the only way to do that is the pure eradication of like all of the skulls in which that ideology like survives yeah it's so, pretty brutal mm-hmm. but that's that's the mission we're on and i mean given it's one of those things in the fiction, given how, like, what is Saravok about? He really just wants to bring about as much murder as possible. There's yeah. not, like, an, like as far as an ideology goes, it's, it's one that you kind of feel a little bit safer eradicating because it, it, it's just real bad. But you know what you got to do to stop all the murderers? You got to murder them. And that only helps Ball, too. It's a real, he puts you in a real bad spot. Oh, but that's that was his plan all along. Right? Exactly. He's just the Think king of it. bad spots. It. <laughs> Yeah, the the folio that Jurgle gave to to Bane, <laughs> uh, Mercule, and Ball uh, was death, tyranny, and bad spots. Bad spots. Yeah, that's the worst <laughs> kind of thing you get. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a real rough one. But so there's that level of that's where the game begins for the character. The ki- last thing the character did in the previous game, pop Saravok. That's, that's, you, you don't see the character again until they're descending into this thing. There's also another like story hook as far as like a crusade that people are really worried about. What's the deal with that? Yeah, you know what? I'll be honest. By, so <laughs> for this episode, we have played just this opening kind of gambit for, for mm-hmm. the game, right? This opening dungeon. And so we've learned in voiceover about this person named Kalar Argent, which is just... The most fantasy ass name. Mm-hmm. I mean, my God. 
It's it is a step above belt. <laughs> One of the grand dukes of Baldur's Gate. Not anymore. Well, in my game, I guess he's still around. Belt's still around mm-hmm, for me. Mm-hmm. But but yeah, so Kalar Argent, and then we get this like opening um, animation video thing that says, hey, uh, there's this person. She's she's rolling all around the north. She's doing all kinds of good stuff and also some bad stuff. Oh, no, bad stuff. Mm-hmm. And also, maybe she might be a child of Baal. Like, hands up, we don't really know. But mm-hmm. it's it's pretty explicit in that... Uh, <laughs> In that opening video, that that's probably what's going on here. Yeah, either she's a child of Ball, or the fact that she isn't a child of Ball is a really big deal. Yeah, right. Yeah, like there's not a there's not a way that this plot advances, and she isn't a child of Ball, and it's just like, oh yeah, it's no big deal that she's not a child of. That's going to be the big reveal. Yeah, if if that is the case, just a really like a good superhero. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. one of those situations. Drizzt Dorden, child of Ball. But Bruno yeah, so- Battlehammer, child of Ball. <laughs> But it's one of those things where that's in the that's in the opening section, but uh, the first hour, or for in in Kunzelman's case, two hours. Yeah, I, I, it, this took me two hours. Um, I was going to say that later, but yeah, that is true. <laughs> uh, does not have to do with Kalar Agent Argent, so we can kind of set that aside for now. Yeah, there are a couple people, a couple uh, cultists, who in leaving or in fleeing. Uh, leave behind like notes that that they're going to go join the crusade. So it's important in that way that like any rando who wants to abandon their home and job right now can go join a murder crusade that's going across the northern Forgotten Realms. Mm-hmm. So I guess that's important. Yeah, it's just that's just kind of like it's like the public works of the nineteen the early twentieth century, but uh, tyrannical. Yeah, well, it's also just kind of breadcrumbs a la the beginning of Baldur's Gate and, like, talking about this iron shortage. Like, it's just showing that the average Joe knows about this crusade. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, but yeah, so so we do that, and so I plop down, and I'm still playing Ticklevar. Mm-hmm. Sorcerer Supreme. Mm. Supreme Pizza. Oh, man, you got that eye of Agamento? Got the eye of Mentos. Okay. Eye of Mentos, the fresh maker. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I plop down, and half of my apart. So so I like just roll in it, right? Mm-hmm. Like we all get going. I like talk to Emma when she's like, "We we sure gotta clean out this this place, Andy." And I was like, "Yeah, all right, <laughs> let's do this." And we like roll through, and my my characters are just like getting wailed on, <laughs> like it's brutal. It's getting destroyed. And then I slowly find out that um, half of them don't have weapons, most of them don't have armor. And all of my equipment is gone. Ooh. Not only that, as I'm clicking around and moving, half of my party keeps saying things like, our journey is almost over. Or like, I feel the pull of adventure. And so they're Hmm. basically saying they want to leave. And so I was like checking my reputation and all this stuff. Eventually I kind of like figured out, oh, this is probably like a plot-based thing. Like Hmm. some of these characters might go away, I guess. But yeah, so if characters, I actually had to go Google this because I was so confused about why most of my characters had no equipment. So if your characters die in the fight with Saravok, then they have no equipment. Huh. And it's okay. all in one pile in the middle of the opening room. And I just didn't see it. Oh, weird. Yeah. And so I was like having a real hard time. So that's kind of how it opened for me in just sheer panic. 
at <laughs> thinking that I might have to like do something really hard here at the beginning. I got you. So it was very stressful, but narratively, you begin this game with several of your party members naked, and with their in- equipment, they find it at the at the, on the floor of the first chamber of the Corlaz family tomb. Yeah, that has to be like very existentially distressing for those people. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of like one of those horrible nightmares you have where you show up to school and you're naked. Mm-hmm. But instead of school, it's like your arch nemesis's cult's hideout. And yeah. you find your clothes in their hideout. Yeah, I have That's that all the time. That's even more distressing. Yeah. And they have my, my school books and they're all blank. <laughs> and then my teeth all fall out. Oh, God. And then I forget all my spells. Mm. It's pretty messed up. So yeah, the flaming fist is down here too, and they or three want... members of them. Three. Well, that's more than most places, I guess. Yeah. Unless you are the streets of Baragost. <laughs> How about True. that? True. True. That's a little bit of local humor for you. But uh, so yeah. So then you just start going through this uh, this dungeon. It's a dungeon. Yeah. Like kind of a, a classical style dungeon, or at least a new age classical style dungeon we'll talk about that in just a second but yeah we just kind of move through it and it's kind of mm-hmm. room by room and uh you get in a bunch of fights and eventually you fight Corlash. Mm-hmm. laz yeah it got a little weird the s and the z seems a little redundant but you Corlash, know heir to black blade mm-hmm. 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 but yeah so that's kind of like the story hook drops you in in meteor race you cannot leave this place to let go to town to, to fuck around in a in a tavern somewhere mm-hmm. you are lo- this is this is your life right now this is your life you're in this dungeon you got to get through it to get through the the interlude here so that is how the the game wants you to play it and that's how we played it yeah and that's actually kind of the only story stuff that's going on down here mm-hmm. um normally we would kind of like progress through what we played kind of bit by bit or quest by quest but there's really not that here so what what Danny and I kind of talked about before this episode is like, all right, well, Siege of Dragonspear is mm-hmm. kind of radically different in a lot of different ways from Baldur's Gate 1. So we're going to spend the next like little bit of this episode talking about like all of the mechanical and design differences Yeah, between that game, Baldur's Gate 1, Enhanced mm-hmm. Edition, and this game, Siege of Dragonspear, Normal yeah. Edition. So I guess the first thing we could talk about is the UIs got got a little reworking here. Mm-hmm. It is not the UI you are familiar with from uh, from Baldur's Gate One. I think that theoretically, had we purchased uh, Siege of Dragon Spear before playing the Enhanced Edition, mm-hmm. we could have played through the entire Enhanced Edition with this UI. It's a little bit better. You think so? What are what are what are the improvements for you? Well, so here's a critical difference. The original Baldur's Gate 1 UI uh, either looks like, depending on on how you want to think about it, it looks like dirt, like Mm -hmm. dirt, just crappy dirt, or it looks like a leather-bound book. Mm -hmm. And this is like your 13-year-old cousin's coolest version of a leather trench coat. Ah, I got you. That's Siege of Dragonspear, I think. Like, it's, it's like... Dark gray with light gray on top of it. Mm-hmm. It looks like it's uh, Geralt of Rivia's armor. Yeah, it's a little bit more. Also, even though you're saying it's cooler, I also think like aesthetically, it's just more neutral mm-hmm. than what Baldur's Gate was going, and it's just 
like Baldur's Gate, you can age that game on that UI, like because of how noticeable it is, right? Mm-hmm. Aesthetically and by, by the color palette, and you're like, man, that is sticking out in this screenshot. In the same way that if you look at like really old pictures of MMOs, the difference between WoW, where it's just like barely hiding around the the edge the vanilla one at least mm-hmm. versus like the old school everquest where like the game like you the what your character even saw was like a quarter of your computer screen because like the chat box and like the sidebar um but yeah the original Baldur's gate uh interface was like very noticeable this one is like the color palette is designed to like not be that ostentatious but still look kind of cool yeah so mm-hmm. there's that the inventory screen is uh a little bit better it's a little wider. Things on the ground in your inventory screen are a little bit wider, and it's a little bit cleaner to like click from box to box. Hmm. Like that was a, like a very small kind of tactile thing, and I'm almost certain it's because this game was uh, designed to also be played on iPads, so it needs to be a little bit cleaner. Hmm. But yeah, there's a little bit more clearance for stuff, uh, and it feels a little bit feels a little bit better. I think. Oh, that's good. Yeah, I didn't notice that many like actual technical, logistical-type differences with the UI. I, I mostly saw the aesthetic stuff. But, yeah, so so you got some new stuff there. But we've also got some real-deal mechanical differences mm-hmm. in this game. Um, and I'll, some of them I haven't even experienced. Kunzelman, you, you, you've talked about class-skill dialogue options. Yeah, so um, there's this quest, like one of the, the first quests... Uh, that you can do in this dungeon, and there's this person named Amon, Amon, mm-hmm. something like that. And what they want is moss, like some type of moss, because they want to go to Candlekeep, and their whole logic, right? If you remember back to Baldur's Gate One, to get into Candlekeep, you have to have a rare expen- tome, a rare tome, an expensive book. And so this person, Amon's whole thing is, well, what if I don't bring an expensive book, but I bring a formula? that makes a book that's already there more valuable. Mm-hmm. This is a real, like, labyrinthine way of just paying the toll, mm-hmm. right? Got to pay the toll, troll. Got to do that. So in conversation, I was just able to be like, hey, let me use my sorcery skills to just make this, like, fake mold for you. And so I was like, huzzah, shaman you wow, and here's, here's some moss. And I did the quest that way. Yeah, and I did. I guess I don't have sorcery skills because I'm a barbarian. Mm-hmm. A 100% barbarian. Um, I think if there was a question uh, uh, maybe a few episodes ago, hey, is, is Balthazar some berserker? Mm-hmm. Or is he a barbarian? No, he's a barbarian. Just a straight up. Straight up. Um, and I didn't get that option, And I, but I was nice about it. I was like, yeah, sure, if I find some moss around, mm-hmm. I'll do that. And then you um, cleaved this person's head from their shoulders. No, you know, that's the thing is I, I had the option to be like, hey, you're associated with Saravok. You need to you need to die. Like mm-hmm. even tangentially you are. But I was just like, Saravok's dead, and this person's just an academic. So you really uh or, or Balthazar has really calmed down. I think so, because I don't have like a big quest of vengeance right now, right? Wow. That's some well, real character development. Yeah, it's just really I'm just on the cleanup crew. I've like I've popped this 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 jerk, I got him, and the, now the city's just asking me a favor. Like, hey, we've got some real some real problems if we don't eliminate these cults. And I don't like the cults; they're, they're mm-hmm. bad. I just didn't read this academic as like a, a dire 
threat, like an existential threat to the to the body politic of Baldur Gate, Baldur's Gate. Mm-hmm. So they're coming back to get you. Well, we'll see. But yeah, so so this is something that's pretty I, that I think is interesting, right? It kind of harkens back to uh, to Fallout and Fallout Two and like that era of CRPGs that's mm-hmm. contemporary with the original Baldur's Gate, but the original Baldur's Gate didn't have any of that kind of stuff, that kind of Gerpsian uh, kind of things. Although Temple of Elemental Evil, which is a third edition D&D tactical game, did have skill checks, I think, right? Yeah, they had dialogue, uh, at least the ability to use your skills or, or other kind of abilities within dialogue. But no, I think we were talking about this, and this was kind of conspicuously absent from the initial Baldur's Gate game, given that it was present in Fallout, and given that that's kind of like, that's the stuff that you're used to doing in D&D, right? You're in a mm-hmm. conversation, you roll a die occasionally, right? Mm-hmm. I don't, but I don't know, like, I don't, I don't know, I don't know, I didn't play enough 2.5 to, I mean, I guess it's like DM optional, right? Mm. In the sense of like, where in three and 3.5 and four and five now skill checks are integrated so heavily across all kinds of play you know whether Mm -hmm. that's diplomatic play or whether that's uh kind of like puzzle play or combat or whatever like that um i don't know i don't know if it was i think you could just do like a grindy campaign of attacking you know what I mean? Yeah, and maybe it was just one of those things where, oh, if you want to try to convince this character or something, you actually have to be convincing. You mm-hmm. yourself in the conversation. A die cannot decide that. We're human beings. We can actually talk. We can decide that way. Yeah, and also this game still doesn't have things like um, like a skill tree. You know what I mm-hmm. mean? Of like, uh, you know, you've got diplomacy and acrobatics and blah 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 in the way that 3 and 3.5 and all the other D&D editions since then have had so that could be part of it too right like it just doesn't have the robustness of the system that Fallout had because mm-hmm. it was using GURPS light basically mm-hmm. the special no, system you. so so I don't know I mean I don't I would love to have some some real info on that but, but it um, is cool and it's going to be cool for our play playthrough because you know, Ticklevar and Balthazar are very different characters, mm-hmm. and we're going to be good at different things, and we have different ability scores, basically inverse ability scores, practically. Mm-hmm. And uh, and it's going to just provide more opportunities for our for our narrative experience to diverge, and for us to be able to share share our experiences with each other and and with you, the Visalure, view a listener, view a listener, view a listener. Another game that had this was Planescape Torment, which came out from the same team before Baldur's Gate. So that's even it's even more conspicuous. Hmm. Anyway, so what about dungeon design? This is a yeah. dungeon, like a straight up, like in the way that we talked about how the uh, how Durlag's Tower, which is a straight up dungeon, like a classic Tomb of Horrors style dungeon. Yeah. And this is a dungeon in Irenicus's, um like basement house, the first area of Baldur's Gate Two that we'll get to way in the future. Dungeon it's ass also, dungeon. It's that is a dungeon ass dungeon. So talk a little bit since I didn't play Durlax Tower. Maybe talk a little bit about the way this dungeon is designed and how you feel it compares up to like the the other real dungeon that we've we've encountered. Yeah. So I think it's interesting to talk about. 
dungeon design in these games and i feel like in one of the relatively early episodes i'm thinking somewhere in the in the realm of like three to five we're talking about a plot point it was after we got through the cloakwood and we like went into that fort at the, at the heart of cloakwood and like mm-hmm. rooted them out rooted rail tar out mm-hmm. um on the way down uh i remember us talking about the dungeon design because it got really weird like, there was an ogre down there, like an ogre mage, and just a torture pit randomly. Yeah. You remember that? It's just random rooms kind of stacked together. Yeah. And so that is very, like, reminiscent of a type of dungeon that D&D will make, right? Um, tiny little rooms, like one or two things in a room. Little thematic, like, linkage to each other. And so on on one end, we've got, like, a kind of similar thing going on here, right? Where these are discrete rooms connected with hallways. At the beginning on the first floor, it's fairly linear. Uh, when you get to the bottom floor, the catacombs, it gets a little like, oh, you can you can go several different ways. But there's different weirdness going on. There is like an undead theme to the overall dungeon. But there's like, oh, here's like a random room with beetles. And they're just beetles here. Fire beetles. Uh, fire beetles. Um... But, so I digress. So but when, I, when I think about kind of the comparison to this experience versus Durlag's, the Durlag Tower experience, there's a lot of similarities here. Um, the first is kind of aesthetically, it's a, it's a little bit more linked. Like it has an overarching theme, but you have mm-hmm. those, you have those like departures where you have like a room with a with a slightly different theme in the same way Durlag's tower you had oh well you know dwarf and traps etc oh oh here's some elemental rooms and this is just like an earth elemental room and there's just earth elemental stuff here and i got a little bit out of that but the the aesthetic dungeon design itself does feel it still feels very D&D and 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 in the it's got this kind of grindy feel to it Mm-hmm. Is that kind of you didn't do Durlag's Tower, but is that kind of are, are we are we going veering a little bit too far into encounter design? To me, like dungeon designing and encounter design, these are like very linked things. Well, I also feel like uh, in the sense of the way, especially so so like Nanny's saying, like there's the first level and then a the second level. Yeah, there's mm-hmm. only two levels, right? Yeah, the second level in particular, it, it's it's the way that the map uses every piece of available space like on the other side of every wall is another room almost like we were using one sheet of grid paper mm-hmm. you know what i mean to like plot the whole thing out like there's something very D dungeon design to me about that that kind of like so so for example there's this quest called the shattered staff right this is the other example of that yeah. yeah so you like do stuff and you walk around in a big like big circle almost and then at the end of that circle, when you're almost back to the place where you began, there's a wall, and there is a uh, like a ghost there. He says, oh, bring me my staff, blah, 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 blah. And so you have to walk all the way back around. And literally, you could like draw that on a sheet of paper as uh, like three block rooms together that almost connect up again and then don't. Uh-huh. Yeah, and it's, and it's just interesting, like in a world, in a game, especially a game made in the past couple of years... That has literally, you know, from an isometric uh, 2D art point of view, an infinite amount of space, right? Yeah. Like, asset creation, 
as far as like the drawing is concerned that is the amount of that that's like where the time is is in drawing the art mm-hmm. um the pathing and all of that is, is is fairly simple so um it's just this kind of thing of like we gotta we have to pack as much content even if that content's only tangentially related into the same floors of this dungeon mm. um and that is a very D kind of kind of thing and it feels almost like you know, like you took a, a 3.5 edition or a four, fourth edition um, uh, module and read it, right? Like if you mm-hmm. go back to like first or second edition D&D and you read those modules, they're basically just like sandbox descriptions, right? Short yeah. of like things that are just dungeons. It's mostly mm-hmm. just describing a sandbox, right? Like here's the ecology of all the creatures who live here. Here's what their relationships are like, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, this, where you would have an entire wing of a dungeon that was like, oh, and there's like a kobold little village here, not related to like your overarching goal to this campaign or to this module, which is yeah. to to kill the kraken in the lake, right? Yeah, and the and the way they'll do it is they'll be like, the kobolds will often bring sacrifices to the kraken, but they aren't related in any way, right? Like, there's that mm-hmm. kind of clearly these ecologies touch each other, right? But mm-hmm. but they're not dependent on one another. Um, but this feels very later edition D and D in that like yeah. everything is linearly attached to one another. It all fits in one coherent space. There's no gap for weirdness to be involved because that's what just how you accept dungeons are made. They're all weird feeling. Yeah, and I, I so one big improvement that this had over Durlag's Tower, which I think that there was at least one commenter that's like, man, based on Danny's description, he certainly did love Durlag's Tower. <laughs> oh. Um I think probably betrayed by the fact that I like openly admitted, yeah, I just decided to like open up GameBanshee.com mm-hmm. and take a take a trip down memory lane to like 1992, mm-hmm. um, which is way before this game came out. Mm-hmm. Um, probably and, before uh, Game Banshee, <laughs> probably. Uh, but in in any case, Durlag's Tower. One of the things that just like frustrated me to no end is that in order to get from floor one to two or two to three. You had to do all of these like very tedious little quests. They weren't side quests because they were necessary to get to the next place. Sure. This uh, th- there's a lot of stuff packed in here. There's like a little shattered staff quest. There's the moss quest. There's like a hidden room with some torches, and all of that stuff felt very like, very Durlag's Tower esque. And I just appreciated the fact that I didn't have to do it. Like mm-hmm. I didn't have to do all of that stuff and like either spoil the game by looking at a walkthrough because I value my time or like meticulously clicking on every little thing and like making sure that I find that tiny little space where a torch is. There's, um, there's nothing better than an optional quest. Yeah. It's, it's, and, and, and I kind of, I get more enjoyment out of it because I didn't have to do it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I didn't get enjoyment. So, so there's this uh, little hidden room. And you and you get there by lighting a staff, or by lighting a torch and then putting it back in like the little torch holder. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's very like um, I don't know. It feels like a, it feels like a D and D book in like the best kind of way, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, if you open a chest in there, it summons like a bunch of undead dudes. Mm. That's even more D and D. It was brutal. It was, yeah, there there was a lot of like touch a thing and summon a bunch of dudes. Mm-hmm. Which is very, very D and D. That happens a couple times. That's great because there's nothing like nothing more predictable. It's basically like you walk into a room. There's a tomb. 
There is a skeleton in the corner. Its dead eyes do not glisten. You touch the tomb's top, and the bones begin to rustle in the corner. Hmm. But do that like nine times. Did you run into any bugs with any of these quests? Do you mean fire beetles? (laughs) I'm actually not. I was meaning any kind of light glitches. Do you mean the dead being who haunts the (laughs) the net waves? (laughs) Do I mean features and not bugs? Yeah, do you mean features? Do, <laughs> do you mean, I mean things features? that are definitely on purpose? No, I, I, I don't think I did. Why? So I think the the most... So I ran into two, and the first one was just when I started. There was a very weird... at the in the in ver- On the very first floor, um, you roll up into a, a group of people, and you like there's a dialogue mm-hmm. thing that happens. And after the dialogue, it's implied that they will attack me, and they just didn't. I had I one kinda... guy not do that. Mm-hmm. Did you talk to him again? Uh, I don't think I could. I think I tried to do dialogue, and it, like, didn't work. Oh, one guy didn't do that? That could be, like, a flagging issue, because one guy doesn't attack you, mm-hmm. and once the thing's over, you can talk to him. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's and it. The other, uh the other weird thing, uh, bug or not, so in order to get to the final battle, which we'll get to later, mm-hmm. uh, you have to click a little mechanism to open the door. There are two thieves in there. Um, if you talk to them, they'll ask about you and they say, "Hey, what are, what are you doing?" And then, then g- generally they'll just fight you. If you just go in there and like click the thing and leave, they never talk to you. Oh, that's some real oversight. <laughs> then they're just, you just go in there. Oh, let's uh, turn that, and uh, I am out of here. They never initiate dialogue. That's uh, that's also amazing, though. You're like, excuse <laughs> me, don't pay no mind. I'm the handyman. Don't don't worry about it. The boilers well, I mean, off it again. Just, it made me think back to the Sword Coast about that one cultist guarding the door that I just didn't talk to. Oh, that poor guy. And those those like a dozen cultists that are still waiting in a barn, like starving. As I'm down here in this in this basement, and they're a completely different cult. <laughs> they're completely different, un- totally unrelated. I want that cult to come back. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, like we were waiting for you mm-hmm. for five months, sixteen yeah. weeks at a time. But yeah, so we've got kind of dungeon design. We've got like uh, a little a little something familiar, mm-hmm. a little things that are like. Maybe a little bit more reminiscent of more recent D and D, but you know the stuff that we've been recognizing in D and D for a while. But the encounter design, I think, th- there are starker differences here. Yeah, I felt like someone was torturing me with pliers every <laughs> single time I entered that. Like it, it's like comical, just violence, mm-hmm. like a hostile style situation. I had such a hard time with this. Yeah, there was a there were several fights that were, you know how after I I talked about in Durleg's Tower killing the demon knight and then going back to, uh, going back to the name of that town. What was what was the town in Sword Coast? Uh, Durleg's beard. No, Olgoth's beard. Olgoth's beard. There you go. I knew beard was in it, but yeah. Olgoth's beard and there were like cultists and like that the fight of all of those like a dozen cultists was just so much harder than the one demon knight and -hmm. these fights that that are in uh this prelude are very reminiscent of like a bunch of like moderately like a single enemy no problem like i don't think anybody we're not complaining if like these fights were like only a few of these people 
but they're like moderately difficult. They're just hard to hit. They've got like good hit points and defenses, obviously. And there's just so many. Mm-hmm. There's like more than a dozen at times. If this cult had been present, uh, <laughs> if if Saravok had just teleported here mm-hmm. instead of the Temple of Ball deep beneath Baldur's Gate, he would have been fine. Yeah. If he had just teamed up with those fire beetles, <laughs> oh God, it, he would have been fine. Like, I would never have been able to get even close to him. So, yeah, we're talking about difficulty, but we've experienced difficulty before in Baldur's Gate, especially Ticklevar. Yeah. Um, one could say, I would say that my playtime has been roughly doubled <laughs> due to having to save and reload this game. Um, but what is, so is it the same type of difficulty? Like, what are the actual mechanical differences that are making this more difficult than it, it was before? So, yeah, it feels like I, I was saying before we started recording... This uh, Siege of Dragon Spear so far feels much more balanced in the sense of these are not, they feel tailored, Mm -hmm. is maybe the better way to put it. They feel tailored to a six-party, well-rounded group of adventurers, whereas in uh, Baldur's Gate, they felt more natural, right? Like... They so felt more Gygaxian. It felt more Gygaxian, so more true to uh, first edition all the way up to, like, through second edition of D&D, which, which is like, if you were out and about running around in hobgoblin territory, you're going to run into hobgoblins. If you are level 20 demigods, or if you are level 1 random dirt farmers, you're mm-hmm. going to find hobgoblins in hobgoblin country. And at the bottom of their cave, you will find a pit with one or two acidic slimes. And they just live there. And they just live there. And that, there's two of them. And it's only a minor inconvenience for your party to kill them. All they're going to do is make you rest. Like, it's not going to test your, like, skills to fight mm-hmm. these things. No, it, that, that is, like, pure Gygaxian. They are there because they are supposed to be there narratively. Because Whereas, it is a simulation. It is a simulation. Whereas... These designs are designed around, we are going to challenge the player in tactical combat. Yeah. And we are going to, like, pose them problems that they will be forced to solve. And so I was kind of likening the these encounters before, when we were talking before recording, I was likening them to the way that 5th edition now has challenge rating. And in, in uh, outside of this podcast, which I dedicate a lot of time to, I, I uh, am the dungeon master of a 5th edition game, and a whole lot of my time is spent trying to kind of massage challenge rating, which is a way of describing the total experience amount of monsters, to or, or creatures for your party to fight against mm-hmm. basically it's it's like a, a way of doing combat math for encounter design which cr uh little tidbit uh first entered the vernacular in third but it was mm-hmm. kind of a little bit weirder system fourth edition went to like an experience budget mm-hmm. it would literally just say hey if, you, if you've got a if you're gonna level up in 10 fights you need this amount of experience budget and every monster has listed like what its yeah. experience is and that's um, basically how challenge rating works. Exactly, yeah. Um, so these feel like budgeted encounters that are intended. That these Gone are the Gygaxian days of, oh, there's a, there's a you know, a fire beetle because that makes sense because this is a little overgrown fire beetle cavern and just one lives there. No, you're going to have a, a little, you're going to have an encounter of fire beetles. Yeah. Um, and, so, and so in some ways that's really good. 
because mm-hmm. it like it it has the feel of the adventuring day. That's what challenge rating is all about. Is like trying to balance the adventuring day where you use all of your skills and abilities across a whole day, and that's mm-hmm. really cool. On the other hand, it doesn't feel very natural. It doesn't feel like a, like a logical progression. Like in Baldur's Gate One, we were ro- like wandering through the countryside and running up on a bunch of ogres that just smashed the crap out of me, and I mm-hmm. still remember that uh, like brutal. Um, uh, fog of war farming experience that that I tried to pull off. Like that's just how the world was, and and here there's no like that's just how the world was. It's, this is how the world is very tightly designed. But it makes I mean it took me two hours to get through that, and it's just because I had to kind of try every encounter over and over again to figure out the right tactical and strategic uh, you know ways of using my spells and ways of in uh, like who for my front line to attack and all that kind of stuff. How long did it take you playing this before you discovered the strategy of cheesing the monsters back to the flaming fist mercenaries? Uh, I think I discovered it on accident actually mm-hmm. uh, the first time. So uh, when you first go down the first set of stairs, there's some undead at the end of that passageway. Yeah. And I just wanted to lure them back to the stairs so I could kind of like go up and bottleneck down the them a little bit. Yeah. And the people helped me out. And then you're like, ah, here we go. Mm-hmm. And so they're, so they're yeah. flaming fist mercenaries that kind of like uh, every time you defeat an encounter, come up to that encounter with you. Mm-hmm. And you can just kind of like uh, train people back into them. Yeah. And they are a force to be reckoned with. Like they're, they're very strong. Mm hmm. And they've got a they've got a caster with them, like a like a priest priestess, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, they're pretty great. And I and Balthazar leaned heavily on them, not really out of necessity. I think with the right like preparation for each fight and making sure I've got the right buffs and spell effects, etc., it would have been doable. Mm-hmm. But I just for the first three fights, I was like, oh, I just want to do this faster, so I did it. And then oh shit, they like died. Like before the final boss, they 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 all died, and yep. yeah. And but then I was, uh, then Viconia I, got a new helm though, from one of the flaming fist people. Y- yeah, you know what I'm saying. Mm. So it worked out. Worked out. Congratulations. But yeah, yeah. So we did a, had to do a little bit of cheesing, but not not super. I don't know. We get the viewer listeners will be seeing the video, so maybe I, I did a lot more of it. But yeah, you know what? They gave their they gave their all. And I, I took, I took everything from them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You, you, you took exactly what they gave, which was mm-hmm. their, their life. Yeah, um, I kept getting backstabbed. At some point, there's like a party of adventurers you have to kill, and and uh, Ticklevar, specifically Ticklevar, kept getting backstabbed to death by that one guy. I would clear everything else out, and he would backstab me to death. It seems like they may have reworked the way enemies use stealth because I was seeing some mercenaries. Like, I remember in particular one, like, female model cultist mm-hmm. running around, and there would be, like, little text above her head going into stealth, and she would, like, disappear. Oh, well, so maybe they just use it now. Maybe they, yeah, maybe by reworking it, they're actually using it. But yeah, I mean, I never played a character that uses stealth, so I don't know if that's how it works. Like, you just go invisible and... But, mm-hmm. yeah, it, it works that way. And there were a few times I got blinded and, like, the fog of war just extends to everywhere except right around you. Yeah, I think that's always been that way. Well, maybe I've just... Balthazar's just... Maybe his will save isn't as good. Or, yeah. yeah. Oh, this is great. I can't wait for the fall of Balthazar. 
Never. Never like, in a billion years. Like for Balthazar to like come to grips with his like what is he a half orc? Yeah. His half orc gaanity. Hmm. I don't think so. I think he's he's going all the way. He's gonna be the most powerful thing ever. Oh okay. So but yeah, so then how did he At the end of this dungeon, there's a final battle. Yeah. With Corlaz. Mm-hmm. How did Yeah, she we I initiate yeah, I initiate uh I initiate dialogue. Say I'm gonna murder her and then run up and try to kill her. And and then I die because everybody just attacks me, and, and she also summons in, like twelve uh, undead. Yeah, and what's even and this is something that I was beginning to get frustrated with. Generally in Baldur's Gate, you would like attack, and they would stand and bang with you until they like failed a morale save and their like reticule or like the their little uh, signifier around them turned yellow instead of red, mm-hmm. and then they would run away. Um, but like enemies are just running away, like they're, yeah, they're doing and tactical. I think it might be AI and like tactical repositioning, basically. Um, or just like, oh, I I am an archer. I am going to like retreat to try to use my bow. Um, mm-hmm. and when I'm melee and I never use ranged weapons, it becomes very frustrating sometimes. But yeah, I had that happen actually with uh, one of like the mercenary band that you have to kill toward the end that I was just talking about. Mm-hmm. And, and like, they were just running away, but not fleeing. Yeah. And so, uh, like, my whole party just kind of stood there and wandered around trying to hit them. It was yeah. very strange. Actually, I had such a, a combat hard time in this that I, tr- I turned on auto-pausing. Mm-hmm. And it was so annoying that I had to turn it off. Mm. That so. was, like, there are certain markers of, like, somebody gets hit. Pause. Yeah, someone gets hit. A spell. Uh, a spell. A spell. Spell. <laughs> I have a spell. No, uh, a spell finishes casting. A combat round ends. Mm. And some other stuff, too. There was, like, five or six, I think. And you were, like, it, it, didn't, seem, it didn't seem to actually help you tactically? He, yeah. No, I didn't. Okay. Just because, like, a, a combat round is different for every character. And so it was like I was pausing at the end of every action, and it didn't seem to really be doing much. Yeah. I guess for me, what really nailed... This this final battle and, like, the last few hard battles that I had in Baldur's Gate 1, so the Demon Knight, Saravok, mm-hmm. just really nailed home how as long as I've got a potion of speed, it's okay. Okay. But, like, practically impossible without. Like, it's one of those things where it's almost necessary for mm-hmm. these hard fights. But yeah, in order to in order to beat this, I like drank a potion of speed, ran all the way back to the beginning of the level, spread out her attack party like along that route, went up to the first level, went back down, killed a few people. Corlage turns the corner, like I have to like kill everybody except her, like even though you should be focusing Focus firing her down. Mm-hmm. She's got stone skin and mirror image and a bunch of stuff. Like it's really, it's really tough. Um, and eventually, I was able to get her. That's that's a lot of work. It was no. It's like look, this is the reality of the of the solo run here. So I did all this prep work, like all this stuff. I'm like casting chant. I'm casting aid. I'm casting bless. I'm casting haste on everybody. I'm summoning skeletons, summoning monsters with my monster summoning wand that I have left over from the Cerebok fight. 
doing all this stuff, I tried a couple times. I'm just getting stomped. Like, I'm having a very hard time. I have two priests, but I'm not quite sure how Turn Undead works. I think it just makes them run away at my level. Like, it doesn't destroy them. Mm. So that's, like, not really working out too well. So I just had Dinah here, who has Fireball as a spell and a Wand of Flame or Wand of Fireball or something that I got from, I think, the Ghost from the Shattered Staff. Mm. From that quest, or somewhere here in this dungeon. Might have been Amon, actually. Okay, that guy from Mm -hmm. Amon. Somebody. So anyway, so eventually I just, like, save my game, cast haste on Donnie here, have Donnie here run into the hallway right before the Corlash room, and then just blind fire with her fireball wand Mm -hmm. into Corlash's room without ever talking to Corlash. Which means Corlash hasn't cast any defensive spells. Yeah, exactly. Mm. So I'll just do that. And the first like couple times I tried it doesn't work. And then the last time I try it, it kills everything. One kills everything? Yes, one blast kills everything. And so I just huh. get this like dialogue. It's like, all right, fine, I surrender. Take me to jail. Take me to the flaming fist. And so then I win. Wow. Yeah, if only Saravak could do that easy. Yeah, she she surrendered and, and I and I told her she wasn't getting out getting out of there alive. Really? You you slew her? Yeah, I did. I, I I let her get arrested. Yeah, it, it might have been because I watched Judge Dredd earlier today. Really? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if that's affecting Balthazar's decision making. Is Balthazar basically Judge Dredd? I don't know. It's pretty close. He's getting there. He's less. Uh, the thing is, he's. It, it's not like the I am the law. Like it does. It's not as if he. He's mm-hmm. not axiomatic in that way. I'm, like, I mean, I'm, he is axiomatic, just not to the law. To himself. Just to an arbitrary distinction of the law. Which Judge Dredd in Dredd does. Mm-hmm. You know, Carl Urban does have his own kind of justice, as is revealed in that movie. So not a, so we're not talking about beginning Judge Dredd, Judge Dredd. We're talking about the end of the movie. Maybe Judge Dredd was that way the whole way. Michael, it's hard to know, right? Mm-hmm. But she did fail her test, but he did not fail her. Ah. So think about it. I'm thinking about it now. Darn. Maybe I need to rewatch it. Gotta think about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but tough final battle, right? I mean, not... Well, not, no, it, not really, but... Yeah, I, I, maybe you just need to stop prepping, disband everyone from the party except Dinah here and Ticklevar... Mm-hmm. Just make sure she's as high level as possible, and then that way you'll just be blind firing cloud kill or fireball or whatever the whatever the spell de jour is I into the fog wait. of war. I cannot wait to get to Baldur's Gate two, where I can just use cloud kill all the time. <laughs> yeah, I've done that multiple times with that game. I'm I'm so so ready. Oh, that's right. Ticklevar should be able to do it, right? Oh hell yeah, Ticklevar will be able to do it. I think he could mm. already do Stinking Cloud if I chose it. But Stinking mm-hmm. Cloud's not as good. It just makes people pass out. Yeah. Um, but no, we're, uh, we may get to a point in this series where the tables turn. Where, where Ticklevar's hard times finally are redeemed. And Balthazar's easy street is, is deeply punished. Mm-hmm. It's going to be like one of those uh, like a, a, where two lines cross. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. where, like where, uh, like the word ideology and the word meme over the just course of intersect the and then, yeah, and and then separate again. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Maybe. And, but this is t- the typical nerd fantasy fulfillment, right? All these jocks show you up early on like mm-hmm. when you're in school, but you know you're going you're gonna to be their boss. Yeah, I use my draconic blood to learn MELF's minute meteors and fling them in the face of my bullies. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yep. Man. But yeah, so, you know, you murder... Uh, well, no, I didn't. Yeah, you murdered... Oh, you don't. You you capture. Yeah. Or you take care of. I put into prison mm-hmm. a undead cult <laughs> murder-worshipping murderer. Mm-hmm. And that's the end of the chapter, which was chapter seven. Question mark. Question mark. Yeah, it's weird. Very unclear. If someone could explain this to us. So the last chapter of Baldur's Gate is chapter seven. But at the end of this episode, we begin chapter seven. Or was or are we ending chapter seven? I don't I think there's ending dialogue. I mean, there is ending dialogue, but I don't think it says the chapter for it. I think it, I mean, says, it says when the new chapter starts. I don't know. Someone, yeah. if someone, could, if anyone can clarify what chapter this is at the beginning <laughs> of this game, it would really help us out. And the the first person that responds, we're sticking to that. Yep. So, so don't uh, don't be wrong and don't make a joke. Yeah, but be be earnest and be right, just like we are all the time. Hmm. That's a nice one. Yep. So anyway, yeah. So we've never played this game before, and uh, it's going to be kind of rough and tumble. You know, we kind of knew the basic plot of the original Baldur's Gate because we'd both played it before and we could kind of plot it out. But for mm-hmm. this, for Siege of Dragon Spear, because we haven't played it before and because we don't want to spoil it for ourselves, and please don't spoil uh, any of the game for us in the comments, though we definitely want to talk about what we've played so far. But the idea is uh, we're going to play one chapter per episode. Yeah. We're going to try that for the next episode and see if that works or not. It should. I don't know why it wouldn't. Let's hope so. If it doesn't, because, you know, some of the chapters back in Baldur's Gate, some were longer than others or more complicated than others. Uh, yeah. If it doesn't work, we'll we'll check in. We'll have a talk. And we'll uh, hopefully come up with a solution. All mm-hmm. of the complications that this podcast has faced has not sto- yet stopped us. No. And even, I have no not even re- the uh, Not even the Elminster Minute could not stop us. <laughs> not even the existence of... Uh, the, the well-regard, well-reviewed, beloved Elminster Minute that someone in development chose to excise from the podcast who mm-hmm. will remain nameless. Uh, no one knows. No one knows. Not even that stopped us. So, you know, don't worry about it, view a listener. Nope. All right. Well, that's the end of this episode. It is. There's uh, no more content. So yeah, yeah, that's if, it. If you like this, uh, hit the like button. If you haven't subscribed already, hit the subscribe button. There's a whole bunch of social stuff in the uh, description for the episode. Go click all of that. That uh, it, Literally every single part of that helps us. And if you like this episode, please tell at least one person about it. If you can get five more people to enjoy the show, uh, all that wealth will come back to you tenfold. I have a very nice uh, triangle diagram to explain how that works. Yeah, we'll feature that in the next... Uh, actually, if, if you can get Kunzelman to... $6,072 per month on Patreon. He will release that triangle chart to the public at mm-hmm. no charge. At, well, at, it'll be at a charge, but uh, you will have already paid the money yeah. for it. Yeah. You will, at that point, he, he owes it to you. Well. Anyway, all right. Well, the end of the episode. Thanks for listening. Thanks. Bye. Goodbye. So.
Says the wise London.